Well, <laughs> things are a little different. Um, <clears throat> two things. Uh, first of all, I obviously don't have my robe on, and that's because uh, I was informed before service that uh, the air wasn't going to be working today. Uh, they did get it back up and running, uh, but it is currently, I was told, about 78 degrees, so I hope you will uh, forgive me. Uh, the robe gets pretty uh, pretty warm, especially when you're preaching, and uh, I don't want to faint up here. So, <laughs> uh, The second uh, thing that I would also uh, ask your forgiveness for is this week was... was rougher than other weeks for various reasons, and uh, <clears throat> as a result of that, I'm going to do something this morning that I, I don't believe I've done in, in, in the 20 years I've been here, uh, and that is to, uh, to reload something I just recently preached, and uh, that is what I preached to the, uh, the young church crowd over the retreat, uh, Luke 13, and preached that to you. So if you would, uh, please, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 13. <clears throat> Some of you, I would assume, have listened to the recording of that, and so be ever so gracious to me this morning and pretend like this is the first time you've heard what I'm about to preach. Luke chapter 13, verses 23 through 28, that'll be our primary text for this morning. Luke chapter 13, verses 23 through 28. The title, by the way, for this, uh, this particular sermon is only, only the few, or only a few, rather. Only a few. Only a few. There is, uh, of course, uh, or as you can see, no notes this morning, and so hopefully you have something to take notes on. Luke chapter 13, verses 23 through 28, and again, the title being only a few. With that in mind, let me read those verses, and then we'll ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Verse 23, and someone said to him, meaning to Jesus, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say to you, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can uh, have time in this country now, today, to talk about what it is that you give to us in your word. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for the ability to do that. But Father, even if, uh, if the outside world were to tell us that we couldn't do that, in obedience to you, we would, we would find a way to do that. But again, Father, we are thankful that we have the freedom and the ability to, to do that here. We acknowledge that is one of the things that we can be thankful for on this particular Sunday, Independence Day. Father, we pray that you would, again, teach us from these verses, change our lives, make us more like our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, the context for uh, these particular verses that I just read in your hearing is verse 22. Look there, he, meaning again Jesus, went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Scholars uh, believe that there are at least eight different places in the other Gospels 
that make up what is being said here in this particular verse, which means that uh, what we're looking at this morning uh, in our verses, 23 through 28, uh, is a good summary uh, of what Jesus taught during his earthly ministry. Which means also uh, that if you want to get at the heart of what Jesus taught, uh, this would be the place to go. Again, Luke chapter 13, verses 23 uh, through 28. And there are four things that uh, are established there uh, in these uh, particular verses. Here is the first. Only a few will be saved. Only a few will be saved. Only a few will be saved. Again, verse 23, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? The person that uh, is asking this question was a Jew. We know that because of places like Matthew chapter 15 where we're told that uh, Jesus, during his earthly ministry, only went to the lost sheep of Israel. And so this individual who uh, is asking this question is a Jew. He is a member, in other words, of the covenant community. His question regarding only a few being saved is not then in relation to the world, but again, those claiming to be a part of the covenant community. This was uh, what he was getting, or the conclusions he's beginning to draw from what it is he heard Jesus teaching. That there are only a few within that particular community, and again, not the world, but within the covenant community, or those claiming to be a part of the covenant community, who would ultimately be saved. And Jesus' response in verse 24 confirms that his concern uh, is real. Verse 28 is, uh, well, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That uh, place that he is speaking of here is, of course, hell. We have other references to uh, hell in this way in the Gospels as a place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Notice in that place where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets dwell, this place also known as the kingdom of God or heaven, this is a place where you yourselves, meaning the Jews, those within the covenant community, many of those people will be, as he says, cast out. You yourselves cast out. And so, few rather than many, and again, few, not in relation to, uh, I think, how uh, people tend to take this particular verse, few as it relates to all human beings who have ever lived in the world, that Christianity or those who follow God and ultimately get to heaven uh, will be a fraction of that total, will be a small percentage of that larger population, and that's not true. Who again Jesus is referring to and who again uh, this question is in relation to are uh, those claiming to be a part of the covenant community. Or as we uh, would say today, uh, the church. Uh, those who claim to be Christian. Those who claim to be a part of Christ's church. Those who claim to follow Jesus. Few as it relates to those individuals will be saved. According to the scripture, we should expect lots of people, lots of people to go apostate. Matthew chapter 24, for example, Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus uh, there is uh, asked a question. This is uh, during his uh, Olivet, or a part of rather his uh, Olivet uh, discourse. And as a part of answering the question that they uh, ask, which is a question uh, regarding uh, his uh, return, Jesus says this, starting in verse uh, 9, Then they will de deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then, notice, 
Verse 10, many will fall away, literally will apostatize. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Hence the reason so many are falling away. And because lawlessness, antinomianism, antinomos, against the law, because they will be against the law here, referring to God's law, because they will refuse to obey God's law, uh, this will be increased, lawlessness will be increased. Because of that, the love of many will grow cold. Hence the reason Jesus says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But again, the point that Jesus is making there in verse 10, many will fall away. That's what's coming. Jesus says you can expect that. That's what's in the future before I return. Many, many of those, again, this, uh, this particular subset that we're talking about right now, many within that group, those who claim to be followers of Christ, those who claim to be Christians, many of those people will fall away, will, again, apostatize. We see a similar language back in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verses uh, 51 through 53. Do you think, Jesus says, that I came to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. We've talked about this text before. The division that uh, Jesus is referring to here uh, is again due to uh, individuals going apostate. And those individuals now being a part of a household with those who remain faithful. Divided uh, households. People uh, who are uh, following Christ, legitimately following Christ, and those who have fallen away. By the time John pens his book of Revelation, only two, only two of the churches remain faithful. Two of the seven churches. This was true, by the way, even in Jesus' day, so it's not like this was just something that was coming after. It was true also in Jesus' day, John chapter uh, 60, or excuse me, 6, verse 60. If you turn there, John chapter 6, verse 60. Jesus is uh, teaching here ultimately about what will become uh, his table, the table that uh, we just uh, partook of. And uh, the Jews who are listening to him, the uh, these people of the covenant community, they're hearing these things. And verse 60 is where we discover their response when many of his disciples, notice the possessive there, his disciples. These are people who claim to be followers of Jesus. When many, and again notice the word there, not few, but many. When many of his disciples heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so, uh, up to this point, they're, they're fine with what Jesus has to say. They're, uh, they, 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 they love him, right? They think uh, Jesus is Messiah, that he's the, the king that was promised to come, which as we've talked about before, is, is uh, primarily what that term Messiah refers to. This uh, Davidic king or son of David who was to come and was to conquer and was to, uh, to reclaim the kingdom for them and for God. And uh, now they've come to a place that based on what he's teaching, they're not thinking that way anymore. And that again because they don't like what it is that he's requiring of them. This is a, a difficult or hard saying, who can listen to it? Literally, who's going to obey it? Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples, notice that, verse 66, 
these disciples who are saying these things, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. They apostatized. Now, in their minds, I'm sure they, uh, they didn't see it that way. In their, their mind, they were still following God. Even though they had left his Messiah, even though they had left Jesus, in their minds, they were, they were still following God. But nonetheless, that's what they've done. They've apostatized. They've left. And again, notice the word. Uh, many, many of his disciples... You see a real uh, sea change in the Gospels from Jesus starting out uh, his public ministry there at the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5. And uh, we're told in the Gospels that the people spoke very well of him. And uh, Jesus is doing uh, all kinds of miracles at this time. And uh, one of those miracles that he does that uh, tells us just how many people have begun to follow him and identify themselves as his disciples is uh, what we see taking place in uh, Matthew chapter 14 with the feeding of the 5,000. Matthew chapter 14. There in that text we're told that uh, those who ate the food and were satisfied was about 5,000 men. But notice what it says right after that, besides women and children. So uh, the count here, uh, 5,000, is only in relation to uh, men, meaning adult men. So uh, women and children are not a part of the number, which means that uh, you can take that, uh, that number, uh, 5,000, and multiply that uh, by about four or five, by about four or five. And so, uh, what you have here is uh, between uh, 20 and 25,000 people who are at this point uh, following Jesus, claiming to, uh, to be his disciples. And yet, by the time uh, we reach uh, places like John chapter 6, uh, many of those individuals are no longer following him. And though we don't know uh, what the number is there in John 6, because uh, we're not told, we don't know uh, what the reduction was from what we see here in Matthew 14, and uh, what is now true uh, at the end of John 6, by Acts chapter 1, verse 15. By the time Jesus ascends back to heaven, we're told there in that text that there was a hundred and twenty people. A buck twenty. We go from twenty to twenty-five thousand. Jesus has essentially got a megachurch at this point, down to a hundred and twenty. And in that description that we're given there, we're told that they're essentially hiding out for fear of the Jews. So they've gone from uh, being the next uh, big thing to all of a sudden hiding for their lives. The term, and uh, again, something we've talked about before, uh, the term that uh, was used to describe them uh, was sacked. That's a term you see uh, throughout uh, places like the book of Acts. The Christians are called a sect of the Jews, which means uh, they're considered uh, a cult. And that's literally what that, uh, that term sect in the Greek means, cult. And so uh, that very derogatory term is now being used to describe Christians, true Christians, legitimate Christians. You see, these masses that have gone away, again, like I said about those in John 6, who's, who these people represent, they weren't going away and leaving religion altogether. They were just going back to their former Judaism. They still believed that they were followers of God, much like many Christians today who reject exactly what it is that Jesus says for their own version of Jesus or their own version of his religion. They are the sect, and yet they're the ones that are considered True Christianity. The many leaving this uh, very small group who really are those who uh, follow Jesus, the few. And uh, I was telling the young church people when we talked about this text, I said, imagine being there at the height of this 
And uh, with Jesus uh, standing on the, the hillside, as uh, many times that's the place he would go to preach because of the lack of uh, modern technology to project his voice. They would use uh, things like a hillside and they, uh, the, the speaker would go up there and then he would project from there. And, uh, and imagine being there in that place with Jesus and uh, you're, you're one of the twelve. And you're standing up there and I, I can just imagine, uh, you know, uh, people like Peter and Andrew. And they're having a conversation as they, they look out over this crowd and they're, they're thinking to themselves, isn't this great? We're rock stars, man. I mean, look at this. We're on a mountain and all of these people are here. We've found Messiah and, and, and we're part of His entourage. And all of that in a very, a very short period of time. We know that Jesus' life was, was no more than three years. And so within a particular short period of time, they go from a mega church to running for their lives. Hiding out in an upper room. Understanding exactly what it is that Jesus is teaching here. Only a few. Only a few will be saved. That brings us then to the second point. Why that is the case. And really two and three help us. Or rather the remaining points help us to understand that. But number two begins that understanding into why this is the case. Why only a few? Number two, wanting to go to heaven or stay out of hell is not enough. Wanting to go to heaven or stay out of hell is not enough. Verse 24, going back to our text there in Luke, Jesus' words again affirming the, 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 the answer to what this, uh, this particular Jew, this individual is uh, surmising to be the case when he asks the question, uh, will those who are being saved only be few or be a few? Jesus responds in this way, strive to enter through the narrow door for many, and here is our many word that we saw uh, both in uh, John 6, as well as elsewhere, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter, will seek to enter and will not be able. Will want to come? They want to go to heaven? But they're not able. Which means this, the issue is not, do you want to go to heaven or stay out of hell? What you want, based on what Jesus says, doesn't matter. And yet today, the message that seems to be most popular, what is preached in many pulpits is, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to stay out of hell? And Jesus says there's many people who would fit into that particular category. Many, I tell you, will seek to enter into the kingdom of God, into heaven. They want to come. They want to go to heaven. They want to stay out of hell. But that doesn't change anything. Again, notice what Jesus says. Uh, they will seek that. They want that. But they will not be able. Which means that... Uh, the issue, and uh, Jesus uh, makes this abundantly clear in the words that are just before that, that the real issue is, is, are you willing to go through the narrow, and that term narrow that he uses there, strive to enter through the narrow door, means constricting and restricting. Are you willing to go through that kind of requirements? Constricting and restricting requirements to get in to that place that you want to go? Are you willing to meet its constricting restrictions? You see, that's the issue. Not again, do you want to go to heaven or stay out of hell? But are you willing to meet those constricting restrictions? What are those constricting restrictions? Well, it's essentially this, happily bowing your knee in full surrender to Christ as King, bringing no conditions to that relationship. And every one of those uh, things that I just mentioned is uh, 
important not to miss, happily bowing your knee. You need to come that way if you're going to come to Christ and it's going to stick. You're happy to do it. And when you come, uh, you don't come uh, 50%, you don't come 75%. It is, as I say, a full surrender to Him as King. And that full surrender means, as I've already mentioned, no conditions. No conditions. You don't come in saying, I'll follow you as long as I get A, B, and C. Uh, You come instead, as the scripture says, as a matter of fact, it's the most common term or uh, frequent term used to describe Christians. You come as a doulos. Literally, you come as a slave who has given up all his rights and freedoms. Essentially, you sell yourself to Jesus as a slave. Hence the reason we say... You need to be a happy doulos, a happy slave. Hence the reason also, many will not be able. Why? Because most people have conditions. Particular terms, things that they want Jesus to give them if they are to give themselves to Jesus. They want freedom in certain areas. And so, when they hear Jesus say things like he says in John 6, uh, that becomes a difficult thing. They don't want now to submit their lives to him anymore. Luke chapter 9. Here in Luke chapter 9, we see individuals with conditions. And uh, Jesus' response to each of them is the same. Essentially, it's this. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. Starting in verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Uh, Here the man doesn't mention what the condition is, but Jesus knows what it is. Uh, This man wants comfort and security if that's going to be the case. And so Jesus responds in verse 58 this way, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Understand that if you follow me, no guarantees of that kind of comfort. To another he said, follow me, but he said, Lord... Let me first go and bury my father again, this man placing a condition upon his following of Jesus. In this case, let me go and bury my father. Scholars have debated about this particular verse for a long time. Either it's a reference to honoring his father because his father has died, or it's uh, so that he can uh, receive the inheritance. Either way, either way, Jesus again uh, rejects such conditions. Verse 60, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 61, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. Again, notice the condition, but anytime you've got that adversive there, you know there's a problem. I will, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And uh, I would agree with uh, what scholars think about this, and that is that uh, what this this particular individual is asking for is uh, to get the approval first from his home, to do what he's about to do in following Jesus, which uh, brings us then to that response I just mentioned, Jesus said to him, no one put its, uh, who puts his hand, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Hand to the plow and looks back. Uh, not willing to be all in or fully committed to the work because of prior commitments or conditions. That's uh, what he's referring to uh, there. It means that the person's interests or loyalties are divided. He has... Uh, put his hand to a particular kind of work, in this case plowing a field, and yet he's looking back. He has other loyalties or conditions or commitments, and so his interests or his loyalties are divided. And again, Jesus' answer, notice, is you can't come that way. No conditions. You don't come with those kinds of things. If you come to me, you come as the slave. You give up such freedoms. This conversation, the one that we're having right now, or 
this talk about for us or us needing to fully surrender our lives to a king as I was preparing this and thinking about this and adding different things to it this week I found it a little ironic given that today is Independence Day and by your laugh I think you understand where I'm going with this this is the day that our forefathers thought it best to do just the opposite while claiming by the way to be a Christian nation Let me just read to you what I picked up from history.com on their website uh, in uh, respect to this particular day it says this, giving some of the history it says this and I quote, in 1775 with the encouragement of Benjamin Franklin and Rush the physician and activist who became a signer of the Declaration of Independence Thomas Paine began writing a pamphlet that would urge Americans to go beyond merely resisting British authority Resisting British authority. He encouraged them to realize they were not British, but Americans, i.e. that a person is, uh, that person is not my kind and therefore should have no authority over me. Paine's pamphlet was the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence. Paine originally wanted to call his pamphlet The Plain Truth, but Rush, who informally served as his editor, persuaded him to instead name it Common Sense. That phrase fit one of Paine's most important notions, that Americans should trust their feelings. The Almighty hath implanted in us the inextinguishable feelings for good and wise purposes. Paine wrote, they are the guardians of His image in our hearts. We are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights including the right to liberty or freedom from governing authorities we do not approve of. In response, the Sons of Liberty, a group led by Samuel Adams, enforced boycotts against Britain's king by sending boys to smash the windows and smear excrement on the walls of local shops that didn't comply. If that didn't work, the owner faced the risk of being kidnapped and tarred and feathered. A painful, humiliating torture that could leave lasting scars. Violence was not necessarily accepted as a regular feature of politics, but there was an understanding that it might be a part of politics as a last resort. Adams attended Boston Latin School and then went to Harvard College. It was there that Adams was introduced to the writings of John Locke, a philosopher in the Enlightenment who argued that governments exist by the consent of the people rather than being divinely appointed. That idea made a powerful impression upon Adams who wrote in his 1743 master's degree thesis at Harvard on the legality of resisting British authority. Happy Independence Day. By the way, Romans 13 makes it clear you can't resist those authorities established by Jesus, which includes all kings and governments, good and bad, and still have Jesus as your king. Can't do that. By resisting them, you are resisting him. Two additional comments on this before I move on. Number one, let me say this. There's a big difference between Christianity and the religion in, American, in America often identified as Christianity. Let me say that again. There is a big difference between Christianity and the religion in America often identified as Christianity. David uh, Galerter uh, calls it uh, Americanism in his book by that uh, title. He says it's the fourth great Western religion, a religion built on evangelical Judeo-Christian principles, but not historical biblical Christianity in that it puts human autonomy at the center. If you're not familiar with that term, autonomy, it just means we have the right to self-govern. We don't need authorities over us. Some of those people who have been Members of this church in the past, but eventually leave, or have left, have left because they were ultimately following this, uh, this religion. 
Americanism, not Christianity. This kind of thinking, by the way, autonomy or uh, no legitimate authority other than self or your conscience, which is uh, what uh, human autonomy teaches, uh, was a part of Luther's evangelical gospel, and uh, it led to what is known as the Peasants' War in 1524 and 25, uh, which saw over 100,000 farmers being slaughtered for taking that position. 100,000 people. Let me also say this. I am, for these reasons, glad that I am a Gentile submitting to a very Jewish king and a very Jewish religion. Why do I say that? Well, because that way no one can ever accuse me of following Christ or being a Christian because we share the same race or nationality. Think again of... uh, Thomas Paine's argument for why Americans should rebel. The British are not our kind. What determines who we submit to is not those things, but who indeed is the greatest and most worthy king. Amen. Number three, going back to our outline. Number three, blood, sweat, and tears will be required. Blood, sweat, and tears will be required. By the way, that last point or that last little bit of comments there was to make this an Independence Day sermon. So when you go to wherever you go after, you can say, our pastor preached an Independence Day sermon this Sunday. It is. Got it? Okay, number three. Blood, sweat, and tears will be required. Going back to our verses, and again, verse 24, uh, I'm picking up here on that term strive. Strive to enter through the Narrow door. I've told you this before. Agonizomai is the term uh, there in the Greek, and it's uh, where we get those terms, agonize or agony from. Uh, Literally, uh, this term means to strain every nerve. To strain uh, every nerve. I like that. Uh, Anyone who is uh, truly living the Christian life knows that it takes straining every nerve. Uh, It takes hard work. There is, in other words, an agony that will be experienced. You will shed blood, sweat, and tears in getting to, to the kingdom or into heaven. If that is not your experience, uh, then you are on the wrong path. And in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, uh, we hear about this uh, other path or other uh, door as it is here. Uh, agonizomai. Uh, to enter through the narrow door in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It's uh, uh, their strive to enter onto the narrow path versus the wide path, which literally means uh, the path of accommodation. The path where it's easy. It doesn't take a lot of work. In evangelical terms, it means just believe in Jesus. Believe he died on the cross for you. It is the sole fide or faith alone gospel. At the end of the day, what you do, what you try to do, that's you trying to earn your way to heaven. And so you can't do anything but just believe. As we've talked about for years, that's not the gospel presented by Jesus. We don't work our way to heaven, but at the same time, we better agonize to obey. We need to be faithful. An old samurai proverb says this, our approach to life should be the same as combat. Our approach to life should be the same as combat. What does that look like? Well, let me just give you a few different uh, scripture references. Jeremiah 29, 13 If you seek me with all of your heart, then you will find me. It means seeking God with intensity and sincerity. This idea of seeking Him with all of our heart picks up those ideas. Sincerity, my heart, with all of your heart, intensity. That's work, is it not? That's work. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 and 35 that uh, we talked about uh, several weeks back. There where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, be, uh, follow me, be a legitimate disciple. Uh, he must take up his cross, a self-execution device, and die to self. Die to self. Dying, as we saw, to self means dying to being controlled by our feelings. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, there Paul talks about this battle with the body in that sense, or our flesh, uh, two other terms that refer to self in Scripture, and again refer to being controlled by our feelings, and there Paul talks about uh, beating his body, making it his slave, which means having discipline in our lives that removes the flesh, or feelings that have control over us. Again, that takes work. Agonizomai kind of work. First Peter chapter 4 verses 1 and 2. There we're told that those who have suffered in the flesh are done with sin. And what it's talking about there is suffering because we don't give in to our feelings or the temptations of the world. He goes on to say that the people of the world uh, they will ridicule you because of your particular position, because you, you won't join them in drinking parties and orgies and the such. And so, the hard work of doing that, and again, the term that is used there is suffering. Just as Jesus suffered in the flesh, we're told there, we too are to suffer in that way. Yes, that's what it feels like to be a Christian. It means, as Titus chapter 2 says, saying no to those things. Matthew chapter 18, verses 7 through 14, and verses 7 through 9 there, we're told the temptations will come into the world. And that in response to those things, we are to take even extreme measures to deal with them. We are to cut off hand and gouge out eye, the two metaphors that Jesus uses to refer to that very thing. Taking extreme measures to deal with sin, to deal with a feelings-fueled life. And that, not only in relation to ourselves, but also those under our care. Uh, That's where he goes in those remaining verses, 10 through 14. Those under our care. And he leaves it with a warning. Woe to you if you lead them astray in this way. Because you didn't take extreme measures, because you did not agonizomai. Now they follow your path. They take the accommodating way that you've taken. And as a result of that, Jesus says, you are one who is worthy to have a millstone hung around your neck and to be drowned in the sea. And so again, the hard work, we think of parents in this respect. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Again, Jesus bringing up this idea of division here. He says, I came to bring a sword that would divide homes, blood family, loyalty to Christ over blood family. This is a a particular theme that comes out uh, throughout Jesus' teaching because, uh, and especially back in his day in the first century and even prior to that, uh, the bonds within family were very strong, stronger even than uh, those that exist today. And so uh, you can just uh, sense some of the agony that would have been required in doing some of that when your family was turning away from Christ and you had to turn away from your family. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 7-1. We talked about this uh, last week. Separation from God-haters, whether they be blood family, friends, whoever it is. Again, there's an agony in that. That's hard work, and yet we need to do the work if we're going to get to heaven. Psalm 1, it talks about not hanging out with the wicked. Blessed are those who do not sit in the seat of the mocker or in the, the assembly of the wicked, and not hanging out with those people, being assembled with the wicked or compromisers. And there also, but blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. What is he talking about there? I am constantly thinking about what God's word says or how it applies to my life, to my experiences. It takes work. It means not just passively running through this life. It means actively thinking about every aspect of my life and saying, what does God's word say about that? Or how do I apply God's word to that particular situation? Again, it takes work. We become the spiritual equivalent of the two-year-old, right? Some of you remember this when your kids were that age and everything was, what's that? What's that? What's that? What's that? Right? It's, it's that kind of a mentality. What does God say about this? What does he say about this? What does he say? Everything in life. 
That's what it means to meditate day and night on God's word. This is what parents are to do according to Deuteronomy 6. When you rise, when you sit at the table, when you lay down, the fullness of the day is uh, depicted there and you are to speak of God's laws. There are to be frontals on your forehead. There are to be uh, over the, uh, the, the, the door frames of your home. And that doesn't mean little trinkety scripture verses. He's talking about the fact that this is the kind of life you live. This is the environment you live in. It encompasses you. This kind of talk. That takes work. Agonizomai. Proverbs uh, 1. Similar to this but uh, different. Doing the hard work to gain understanding. Proverbs 1. All about. As a matter of fact you have a whole string of uh, Proverbs. They're starting with Proverbs uh, 1. Uh, that talk about gaining understanding that leads to wisdom. Right application. Because without understanding, you really don't have wisdom. And so often, especially today, uh, people just want the the, the wisdom piece. But to give people wisdom without the understanding is truly not wisdom, at least not the wisdom that the, the Scripture speaks of. What am I talking about? Well, give them the instruction of how to do something. It's kind of like the the old saying, you know, give the guy a fish versus teaching him how to fish. The teaching him how to fish, that's the understanding And that's what we're called to. And that includes even parents in the home. Taking the time, that takes work. Taking the time in my own life to slow down and to understand things. Why things are the way they are. Uh, I talked about this before. We're the only only creatures uh, who, who, who can ask the question, why? It's a part of what makes us image bearers. Is that we have the ability to do that, and that is really what, what makes us different than the animal kingdom around us, and, uh, and, 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 and what we are to be striving and ascending to as image bearing people. Is to be always asking the question why, which is the question related to understanding. You see, animals always ask the where, they ask the how, they ask the what. It's part of their survival, but the one question they can't ask is the why. And again, that's what separates us. Makes us their conquerors. Makes us, again, true image bearers. This ability to understand the why. And again, within this particular context, why do I bring this up? That takes work. I can't tell you how often I've heard people, uh, or I've talked to people, and uh, attempting to give them understanding, and, it's, and I can just tell all they want. And sometimes they even just say, just give me the answer, just give me the answer. Right? I just want to get my tail out of the crack now. Just give me the answer. Problem is, is you're going to be right back there without the understanding. Why don't they want to wait around for the understanding or take the time to get the understanding? Because it's work. Agonizomai. Strive. Blood, sweat, and tears. Beloved, that's what's required to be a Christian. That's what's required to stay on the narrow path. To have the discernment to stay on the narrow path. To not be taken by the world. To not be taken by the world's version of Christianity. Like an Izomai. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. Another text very much related to both Psalm 1 and Proverbs 1. Here, uh, Paul uh, sums it up this way. We are taking all thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, doing the hard work of that. And so now we're, we're dealing with also this uh, kind of expanding the scope as it relates to the mind. But, but as our mind is constantly solicited by our sinful body, by our sinful flesh, with wicked thoughts and even the world around us, and, and, and learning how to take those thoughts uh, captive. Captive to Christ so that we're not led then, as James 1 says, into what those things ultimately lead to, enticement and ultimately uh, the giving birth to sin. It starts in the mind. So doing the hard work there, agonizomai. Finally, Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 and 27, there Jesus says, uh, whatever I whisper, you're to proclaim on the rooftops. Bold proclamation, boldly standing up for all of Christ's words and not being ashamed of him or his gospel. This is Paul's words in Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. That takes hard work. When you're with, uh, maybe it's uh, people at school or maybe it's in the workplace, wherever it is, and 
all of a sudden they're, they're speaking something that you know to be wrong. And uh, now's the time to make that stance. You don't feel like it. I don't think anybody ever does. You see, here's where it becomes the hard work. It isn't about what you feel like. It's about what must be done. And you do it. Agonizomai. All of this, again, wrapped up into what Jesus is talking about here when he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Many, I tell you, and now you understand why it is that so many miss it. This is part of the constricting restrictions. The master, the king, is saying, stand up. The master and the king is saying, do the hard work. Agonizomai. If you get to heaven, that's what you must do. Agonizomai. Finally, number four, the kingdom has closing hours and doesn't accept credit. The kingdom has closing hours and doesn't accept credit. The kingdom has closing hours and doesn't accept credit. This is the remainder of our verses, verse 25, starting there, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. Uh, But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom. But you yourselves are cast out. Choking myself, sorry here. I'm getting so hot I can't breathe. What's he talking about here? Well, this is a continuation of uh, what he's been giving instruction on. When the master of the house has risen and shut the door, here an indication to that there is a coming time when uh, we say your day of grace will be over. The master of that house being God or Jesus in this case, when he has arisen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside, the day of grace is over. It's come to an end. Hence the reason 2 John 1.8 can say, be careful that you do not lose your reward. It's come to an end because uh, you've waited too long or uh, you haven't done what you needed to stay in. And so again, as it says here, you are back outside. You begin to knock at that door saying, Lord, uh, open to us. But he will answer you, I do not know you. I do not know where you come from. He doesn't recognize you in that way anymore. Uh, You're not part of that covenant relationship anymore. Again, your day of grace is over. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26, you know the text, if we continue to sin willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Day of grace is over, right? What's the author saying? Hey, keep it up. Keep it up and then it'll be done. As we've talked about many times, there is a finality to this life before the next life. I mean, this isn't, you've got all of this life uh, to get it right. It's an incredibly false view based on what we know from Scripture. If you continue to sin, hence the reason by chapter 12, verse 15, it says, see to, the, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Again, that your, gray, your day of grace or former grace is gone. That's his point. See to it. The kingdom again, and this is where I'm getting that idea. It's got closing hours. It's not open all night. It's not just going to wait for you in the entirety of your life. The response, notice again. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. No doubt here a reference to uh, Jesus' time going back to verse 22 and he went on his way through towns and villages teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And so now these people are saying, look, we were, you, you, you came to our town. You, you were in our village. And, and not only were you there and, and not only did we listen to your sermons and at that time we, we embraced what it is that you said, but we invited you into our homes. We broke bread together. We 
ate and we drank in your presence. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from again. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Notice there the designation, workers of evil. Similar to what we see in Matthew chapter 7. I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Again, all of this uh, being marriage language. Jesus has not consummated uh, the marriage with these individuals. And because of their unfaithfulness, they've now fallen out of that marriage covenant relationship. And so Jesus' response to them is, again, I do not know where you come from. But again, these are people who are at, at least one time claiming to be a part of the kingdom. In most cases, were a part of the kingdom. Which again is what I think is being implied by we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. The point to take away is that uh, whatever you were in the past means nothing if it doesn't continue into the present. We must continue in faithfulness. We must endure to the end. This really is what I'm getting at when I say the kingdom doesn't accept credit. Whatever people had in the past... Clearly for these people here, it was no longer true in the present. They didn't continue in their, be- in, their ob- in their obedience. And so now they are designated workers of evil on their way to hell. Again, verse 28 in that place. God doesn't accept credit. It's keep it up or be uprooted. Keep living in faithfulness, which we can do. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 through 14. We can do it. Keep it up or be uprooted. Just prior to this in Luke chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, Jesus tells this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this tree and I find find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And here is that idea. Keep it up or be uprooted. You either continue or what you've done up to that point will not be remembered. This is Ezekiel 33.13. Some of you know the text. For those of you that don't, just listen as I read it. Ezekiel 33.13. Ezekiel 33.13. Uh, that's not the text. Oh, excuse me, I'm in Jeremiah. <clears throat> Ezekiel 30, 33.13 Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered, but in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. And that really, I believe, is the point that Jesus is making here, or at least it's implied. These people are now considered workers of iniquity. It doesn't matter what they were before. Again, verse 26 doesn't matter. It's not relevant anymore. Again, the kingdom doesn't take credit. What you've done in the past doesn't matter if it doesn't continue into the future. Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, I mentioned this last week there. God condemns people for being complacent and this oftentimes uh, plays a part in this people begin to screw around and uh, waste their lives figuring that whatever they've done in the past is good enough or uh, even if it's not God's really not going to uh, is not going to condemn them for it and yet according to that text uh, such complacency makes God angry and one of the questions that uh, I pose to the kids is, why is that the case? And the reason why is because we matter to God. If this is, uh, maybe in some strange way, a way to see this, it's, it's, I think still it's one of the best, is that how do we know that we matter to God? By the fact that He gets angry when we don't do what He says. You see, if God saved you, then you are His investment. He's put time and energy into you, and the last thing that He wants is for you to turn away from that to become complacent you are valuable to him you matter to him but again that means continuing in that way until the end 
Closing contemplation or challenge then to you is to consider these verses. Again, as I said, this is really a summary of everything that Jesus taught. Consider again what these verses are teaching, beloved, and where your life is in relation to these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we've had time to consider these verses again, and I pray that uh, this would be a text, these verses would be some of the favorite for us in the Bible because of the fact that they do remind us what is at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus. Make it so for every single person in the hearing of my voice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.